You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Victor Kumar talks about his paper, Foul Behavior, published in Philosopher's Imprint. Victor is an assistant professor of philosophy and the director of the Mind and Morality Lab at Boston University, where he studies ethics, cognitive science, and evolutionary theory. There are good emotions and there are bad ones. Uh, on the good side, you've got feelings like love and empathy. On the bad side, you've got hate and disgust. Or so it sometimes seems at least. But is disgust really a bad thing? Does it make sense to even ask this question? These are the topics of Vic's paper. In our everyday lives, we're sometimes disgusted by physical things like rotten food, germs, or bugs. This is what researchers sometimes call basic disgust. But sometimes we're also disgusted by bad behavior, what researchers sometimes call moral disgust. In his paper, Victor argues that sometimes both of these things can be fitting. A lot of philosophers have written about disgust and morality, and in recent years, moral disgust has had a bad reputation. Many people think disgust doesn't really belong in morality. And so this paper is trying to resist that skeptical view of disgust. I basically argue that um, basic disgust, like disgust towards filth and disease, is fitting under certain conditions. And actually, moral disgust is also a fitting response to moral wrongs under analogous conditions. So my paper on disgust tries to start kind of at the beginning. Like It tries to explain what basic disgust is, how it evolved and the functional role that it plays in our thinking and behavior. And then it tries to explain how disgust was co-opted for morality. And here I'm trying to synthesize ideas from lots of different researchers, but in particular, um, Dan Kelly is one of the main people I draw on. And so I try to explain why it is that disgust um, evolved and why it plays this important function in our psychology in the way that it allows us to avoid sources of disease and infection um, empathically communicate to other people that something is dangerous and also um, discuss tracks the spread of um, the spread of disease and infection from one thing to another. I think it's important in account of discuss to understand really what at a at a fundamental level the emotion is. And I think there's a lot of consensus here among empirical researchers that disgust is this evolved primitive emotion that functions to motivate avoidance and exclusion of things that are sources of disease and infection. So the way that it does that, disgust, is, is through its functional role. It has, it's, a, you know, it's not an approach emotion, it's an avoidance emotion. When you feel disgust, you want to avoid and uh, distance yourself from something that is disgusting. So that's, that's, that's what researchers generally think disgust is. And there's also a lot of agreement too that that disgust was then, um, at some point in human history, co-opted for morality. That just in the same way that we might want to avoid and exclude things that are sources of disease and infection, we also might want to avoid and exclude people or behaviors that are threats to us. And so disgust also was recruited to play that role as well. There was an assumption, I think, early in the literature on disgust, that people felt disgust first and then the moral judgment came after. Um, and I do cite some, some of the work in this paper 
contradicting that idea that, you know, I cite Josh May, for example, with a nice theory paper on this. Um, and I think what the new evidence shows is that, um, no, actually feeling incidental moral disgust, like when you're in a dirty room, doesn't actually appreciably affect your moral judgments. Um, some people think that what happens in moral psychology is that people feel a moral judgment first, and then they feel the emotion. So I think it really depends on what you think of a judgment is. But I think that in general, um, even if a judgment is coming after the emotion, there's a whole lot of cognitive processing that happens first before the disgust. There's some internal processing of whether a norm has been violated or whether someone has done something morally bad. And it's, you know, what the disgust plays an important role in morality when, um, when uh, it's integral to the object of evaluation. That is when um, it rests on, on some implicit or explicit evaluation of uh, a behavior or a person as doing something wrong or doing something bad. People seem to think that disgust is a conservative emotion, that the times when people feel moral disgust, it's in response to things that are more the sorts of things that the conservatives think are wrong than liberals think are wrong. So, you know, uh, people feel disgust in response to things like um, unnatural behavior, like maybe homosexuality, or maybe things like um, cloning or genetic engineering. And I think that what might be going on in the background for some skeptics of disgust, like Kelly or Nussbaum, is they think, well, this is not an emotion that's characteristic of my psychology as a liberal. It's the other side that feels this. So let me find some other arguments, independent arguments, to show why disgust is um, unreliable or harmful. And I actually think that it's just not really true that disgust is a conservative emotion because I think liberals feel disgust too. I mean, for example, you know, conservatives might feel disgust at the thought of defiling the pure human body. But I also think that liberals feel um, disgust at impurity as well. It's just different, different forms of impurity, things like polluting the environment. Um, you know, if you see someone driving a Hummer, maybe if you're a liberal, you feel disgust at this person. But then I think there's also other things that people feel disgust towards that are totally bipartisan. They're not just, they're, they're emotional reactions that are shared by conservatives and liberals. So, for example, people feel disgust towards dishonest politicians or people who use, uh, people who or exploit others. And yeah, so that's a one way in which disgust, that's another way in which disgust is not um, distinctively conservative. It's a, in this case, it's a bipartisan moral emotion. So that's kind of the background, trying to explain some of the, the really fundamental science of disgust, both basic disgust and moral disgust. And then I try, and then I turn in the paper about halfway through the paper, I turn to more normative questions. And I wouldn't, um, you know, my paper is not trying to argue that disgust is a good guide, like you should trust the wisdom of repugnance in the way that Leon Cass thinks. My point really is just that disgust is no worse and no better than so many other emotions like anger and sympathy. So these emotions, they also misfire. Um, there's, there's many cases where, you know, you might feel anger at someone, moral anger, but it's really, it's not really that they did something wrong. You, you're just entitled. 
you know, so I'm, I'm not trying to tell people that they should rely on disgust. I'm just saying they shouldn't dismiss it as less relevant to moral life than other emotions. In general, I think that there's too much variation, both between individuals and between cultures, to draw very sweeping generalizations about the wisdom or folly of disgust. Like, um, is disgust good or bad? Well, no, that's just a bad question. I mean, disgust can be good under some conditions and bad under some conditions. Sometimes, you know, when you feel disgust, maybe you're, you're responding to something important and sometimes you're just being misled. I think that one of the complaints that I have about our field of philosophy is that I think philosophers try to generalize much more than the subject matter permits. And so I don't think you can make these broad sweeping generalizations about disgust or any other moral emotion either. A big question here is what, what does it mean for an emotion to be fitting? And for the most part, I, I really dodge that question in the paper because I'm making this argument from analogy. I'm saying, well, if you think that basic disgust is fitting in these conditions, then moral disgust is fitting in analogous conditions. But um, it's true that um, fittingness is different from other kinds of normative appraisal like reliable or justified. And, um, you know, so my, my own view of fitting is, um, uh, fittingness is, it's pretty controversial. I think that an emotion is fitting, is a fitting response to it, an object that elicits it when, um, having that emotional response to things of that general type tends to produce good consequences. So like the reason why basic disgust is a fitting response to things like rotten food or feces is because like in general, if you have that disgust response, then that'll lead you to avoid the things that are sources of disease and infection. So it's going to have good consequences generally. Um, but that's a very controversial view of fitness. Pe most people don't agree with that view. So my argument in the paper doesn't try to rest on it. But I do try to engage with other people who are trying to focus on different way, other ways of evaluating moral disgust. So for example, Dan Kelly, in his great book, isn't really thinking so much about whether disgust is fitting. He's trying to think about whether it's a reliable response. Like when you feel moral disgust, is that a, is that a reliable sign that the thing that you're responding to is actually morally problematic? And um, so my main argument isn't about reliableness, but I do have arguments that respond to Kelly in that paper. So, you know, I'm, I'm arguing that, well, actually, so one of the arguments I make is that disgust, uh, the mechanisms that underlie disgust are so flexible that you can't directly read off the way that it currently operates from its evolutionary function. So yeah, maybe basic disgust was to some extent unreliable, but that doesn't mean that the way that disgust operates now, especially in moral domains, um, is also unreliable because we flexibly attune our disgust sensitivity and our emotional responses in general, depending on our physical and social environments, in particular our learning environments. One kind of skeptic argues that disgust is unreliable, but another kind argues that it's harmful, that it has bad consequences. We feel disgust towards um, outcasts and towards the downtrodden and so disgust is just one more way of reinforcing these bad in-group, out-group boundaries. Um, you know, people feel disgust. Disgust is the sort of thing that drives um, exclusion of homeless people or um, xenophobia. And 
I think those arguments are really powerful. Martha Nussbaum is really the major proponent of these arguments. And I think she's right that that should give us pause about disgust. But my argument here is that um, this doesn't make disgust uniquely bad because all moral emotions have these similar kinds of dangers. I mean, anger is an emotion that I, I, it would be hard to imagine human beings as moral creatures without experiencing moral anger of some form, indignation or, res- or resentment or outrage. And the thing is though, anger also has really bad consequences. Anger can drive hate and violence and murder and genocide. And the fact that it does, that doesn't mean that we should try to not feel any anger at all. We just have to be worried about the excess anger. I mean, I think this is even true of empathy and sympathy in the way that people like Jesse Prinz and Josh Bl- and uh, Jesse Prinz and Paul Bloom argue that empathy can be problematic in some ways too. I think empathy can prop up parochialism and bias, where we feel more empathy and sympathy towards people who are members of our in-groups than than out-group members. So, um, yes, disgust has negative consequences, or it can. But so do all moral emotions. And I think the key is to not feel excessive disgust or excessive anger or excessively biased empathy. Um, because disgust also has good consequences as well. And that's part of what I argue when I turn to thinking about how disgust can be fitting. So, yeah, you know, these people who are critics of disgust, they're, what are they arguing exactly? That we shouldn't feel any disgust at all? Or that we should just try to reduce the amount of disgust we feel, or maybe we can't reduce it, but we should just be wary of not of behaving in the way that disgust is leading us to behave. It's not, it's not ultimately clear. I, I do think that um, there are, you know, uh, well-known techniques in cognitive behavioral therapy for um, reducing at least the intensity of our emotional responses. So, um, one way that happens is through habituation, right? You slowly um, expose yourself to a stimulus until you feel less and less of your, um, the at least less intense emotional response to it. So you could imagine um, that kind of, um, you know, analogous, something analogous to cognitive behavioral therapy being used to attenuate our disgust responses, or at least make us more conscious of acting blindly in accord with them. Um, but then I think, well, if that's what you're going to do, why don't you focus specifically what you shouldn't really focus so much on reducing your disgust response across the board, but specifically focusing on, you know, not looking at the cases where disgust is fitting or apt, like, don't worry about feeling disgust towards cheaters and people who are exploitative, just focus on the bad cases. And of course there are bad cases, you know, when you're feeling disgust towards um, people who are disfigured, for example, that's, a, that's an automatic response that a lot of people have. It's those kinds of disgust responses that you should try to modulate and not, not try to eliminate or reduce disgust across the board. I think it's unrealistic to ask people to reduce their disgust responses across the board because we feel disgust in so many different ways, and I'm not sure what kinds of techniques you could use to make that happen. But I also think it's... So it's not feasible, but it's also not wise either, because I think there's many cases where we ought to continue feeling disgust. I mean, I think it's one of the accomplishments of 20th and 21st century feminism that we feel more disgust towards people like 
Harvey Weinstein and Donald Trump for saying sexist things. And it's like, um, no, it would be a bad thing. It would have this bad side effect that we wouldn't feel as much disgust towards the people and the behaviors that really deserve it. So moral disgust has pros and cons like everything else, but um, it is it can be a fitting moral response, a fitting attitude. And the way that I argue for this is by making an argument from, from analogy. And I begin with, I begin early on in the paper trying to explain when basic disgust is fitting. So basic disgust is fitting when it's evoked by sources of disease or infection because disgust motivates withdrawal. Um, it's also empathically transmitted to others. You know, it communicates the expression of disgust communicates to others that something is worth avoiding and withdrawing from. Um, also, disgust can track the spread of disease and infection as one contaminated object touches another. And so my argument is that moral disgust is fitting under very similar conditions, though it's when the elicitors, in particular, it's when the elicitors are what I call reciprocity violations. So that is when someone is engaging in things like cheating, exploitation, or dishonesty, then it's it's an apt response to withdraw from them, um, to empathically transmit your moral disgust to others so that they're disgusted by this person too, um, and to track the spread of their behavior as other people, um, you know, uh, when some people are violating norms, other people tend to violate them as well. So basically the idea is that, well, basic disgust is fitting when it protects the body from um, being polluted by disease and infection. And moral disgust is fitting when it, treks, when it protects our social body, our communities from being contaminated by people who so mistrust and to capitalize on the trust that we have for each other. I definitely don't want to be arguing that just because something evolved makes it good. Um, I think there's lots of things that have evolved that aren't good for us, aren't good for other people. Like we have probably evolved some flexible tendency towards xenophobia and domination, and that doesn't make those things good. But I don't think you can kind of um, build your moral system from scratch. And both biological and cultural evolution have done a lot of work in building our moral systems. And it would be, they're, they're kind of, in some, in many ways, but not always, evolution is smarter than us and can track things that, you know, individuals can't figure out on their own. So I think that um, evolution can be a clue to things that are valuable. And, um, you know, nature's purposes are not necessarily ours. We don't care about fitness. We care, we have other ends. But sometimes our purposes and nature's purposes align. So evolution, had, in this case, has produced a capacity for disgust that has certain consequences that um, increased our fitness. But those consequences also matter to us. We care about this. We want to be free of disease and infection. We want to, be, uh, we want to exclude people who are um, um, disrupting our communities and sowing distrust. So... Um, when the mechanisms that evolution produces uh, are conducive to goals that we share, then um, then we we can figure out how to best design our communities by thinking about how they, how they've been designed by evolution. 
My argument is that there's an analogy between basic disgust and moral disgust. And you might think, well, there's actually an important disanalogy here, which is that it's fine to feel disgusted at food, that even if it's okay, but it's not okay to feel morally disgusted by people, even when they've done nothing wrong. Um, so I do, I do feel the force of that criticism. Um, but it, I think it really all depends on what the kind of background um, rates of moral violations, and that really, that really depends on the context. So for example, like one type of a person who elicits fitting moral disgust is like a person, generally a man, who sexually exploits people in subordinate positions. And I think the problem here, at least in our society, is that too many such exploitative people are getting away with it. So I think that maybe our moral disgust sensitivity, sensitivity in that domain is undersensitive rather than oversensitive. We're like, we're not feeling enough moral disgust towards people. So I think it really depends. Like, um, maybe you want to, um, <clears throat> in some cases, give people the benefit of the doubt. But I think when people, too many people have been, been benefiting from doubt, then those are cases where um, you perhaps want to ramp up your sensitivity of disgust towards people. In the last section of the paper, I talk about the, the way in which disgust is useful or harmful in politics. And again, my general view here is not like, disgust is good. It's like, let's try to figure out the ways that disgust is good and the way that it's bad. And I do think that disgust has this really important communicative function. It can, it's a, an effective way of commuting to other people. Um, our values and um, sharing them with people and, and creating solidarity. Um, but I, I think I increasingly in the last few years, I've been, I've been more persuaded by the dangers of disgust in political life. I mean, I think that uh, disgust is probably one among many factors that drives um, polarization um, as people are disgusted by outgroup members, and increasingly that means people from the other political party, or even people who are liberal like you or conservative like you, but not quite in the same subgroup as you. Um, so I, I kind of worry that maybe at least in recent years on balance, disgust has been a negative force in reducing solidarity because of the way in which um, at least in America, politics has become um, so much more fragmented uh, and people are really hiving themselves off in smaller and smaller groups and feeling um, disgust, contempt for anyone that doesn't subscribe to precisely their set of values. So uh, I think, I mean, I, th I think it's a very hard question, but I think that it's likely that uh, more, there needs to be more cooperation and solidarity between political tribes right now, and I don't think disgust helps with that. There's been a lot of fascinating research on disgust, and I think that more research is needed. So, you know, one thing that I think that is more conceptual, I think there needs to be more work on really what moral disgust is and what distinguishes moral disgust from more basic disgust. Mara Ballard has a nice paper on this, um, but I don't think it settles the question, so I'd like to see more on that. I'd also like to see more empirical research on exploring particular domains in which people feel moral disgust. Uh, 
like I think there's lots of different domains where people feel more disgust. It's not just purity violation. It's also, as I argue in the paper, quote unquote, reciprocity violations, cases of cheating, dishonesty, and exploitation. There's also much more specific things that have to do with like sex and sexual exploitation. So I'd love to see more focused empirical research that doesn't just look at, um, that, that tries to uh, not just give people questionnaires, but tries to um, develop more sophisticated techniques for understanding how people actually feel disgust in their lives in um, particular domains and contexts. What I'm trying to do is figure out how disgust works. Like, what is this psychological tool that we have of moral disgust? And how can we use this tool in good ways? And how can we avoid using it in bad ways? I think people like Martha Nussbaum are absolutely right that disgust is a tool that can lead us astray. It can lead us to exclude, subordinate people who are already marginalized. But I think disgust is a powerful tool as well that allows us to punish and um, contain people who disrupt the trust that is part of our social fabric. I've um, just written a new book with Richmond Campbell called A Better Ape. And that book is trying to do a similar kind of thing. It's trying to look at our evolved moral psychology. How did our moral minds evolve through biological and cultural evolution? What are the tools that we are left with after um, millennia, uh, in fact, millions of years of evolution? What kind of moral capacities do we have? And how can we use them for good and avoid using them for bad? So, for example, Campbell and I think that um, a key part of the moral mind is the way in which uh, our moral emotions are integrated with um, more cognitive reasoning processes. And um, we think that um, that uh, in certain kinds of social contexts, our moral reasoning can shape our emotions in ways that make them more sensitive to the needs of others, that make ourselves more sensitive to uh, injustice and unfairness. And so the, the book in general is looking at the tools that we have as a result of our evolved moral psychology and trying to understand better how to use those tools in ways that can make our societies better and uh, more inclusive and more egalitarian. that's it for today's episode. Funding in part was provided by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy at George Mason University. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Vic Kumar, his work, and some of the resources mentioned on this episode.